Luke chapter 3, today we'll be reading verses 23 to 38. This is rather ironic that on Mother's Day, we will be reading, may very well be the longest list of fathers in the Bible. There's 77 of them, actually, and it's uh, a nice challenge as far as reading and proper pronunciation goes. Let's uh, read this passage, and then we will pray and get into this text. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxet, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Our Father in heaven, I pray that in this passage of your holy scriptures, we would see our Lord Jesus Christ exalted. Father, you know the struggles that we have as finite mortal sinners with understanding your word and and taking it to heart and appreciating it as the word of God. And certainly that is the case when we come to passages of scripture like this, these genealogies. But I pray, Father, that your Spirit would enlighten our eyes and our understanding to see and to know our Lord Jesus Christ here and to exalt in him here. So give to us your Holy Spirit that our worship would be true and pleasing to you. We ask that you would lavish us again with your grace. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been here um, over 10 years now, and um, probably I, I talk about myself from the pulpit a, a little too much. Um, I think it's it's hard to talk about yourself too little. It's easy to talk about yourself too much. And so you've come to know things that I'm interested in, my likes and dislikes. It's been a while since I mentioned it, but you know that I, I hate Brussels sprouts. But uh, you know that I love the Toronto Blue Jays, and I I really enjoy bird watching, and I love history, and and so on. And um, I do. I I love history. I love to know people's stories. It doesn't have to be just the great stories of history, the the most notable of men and women. I love to know everybody's story, and. Um, you know, I, I miss hearing from some of the, the generation that has gone on before us. I miss hearing their stories of the old days and how it used to be and, and where they came from and so on. Um, some amazing stories and incredible endurance from back when times were quite a bit tougher than they are for us now. So I, I like family trees. And I, I very much appreciate my own. And I've told you this before, but our older son, Marshall, is William Marshall Reynolds. And he's named after my grandfather, William Marshall Reynolds. But uh, he's not the, the only William. I am William Michael. My dad, whom you may have met as John, is William John. And this is a tradition that I've I've only known about for well, I've known about the tradition all my life, but I didn't know how far back it went until a few years ago when um, my dad's sister put all of this together and uh, packaged it and everything. But uh, now I know that William Marshall Reynolds, my son, is the seventh consecutive oldest son to receive the name William, a tradition that started with his great-great-great-great-grandfather, William Hodgers Reynolds, in 1831. Now, you might not care whatsoever about that. I think it's pretty interesting myself, and I love that tradition. I love being personally a part of it. And it might sound to you like our family is pretty good at keeping up with the, the family history and records and genealogies, but we're not. We're really not. I mean, to go back 200 years is really not a, a big deal. The Jews would laugh at us if we thought we were doing pretty well at this genealogy thing. Um, maybe you can go back 200, 300, maybe some could go back as, me, as much as 400 years in your family line, but I doubt that anybody here would be able to go back further than that. I think that one of the problems, the most obvious problem, is that when you migrate from one continent to another, things tend to get lost. You don't know those names and those place names and so on, so things tend to get lost. I think uh, another reason that we're not very good today at keeping these records is because too many people don't care. They don't care who they came from, which I think, honestly, is very strange. And to help you perhaps a little bit in caring about who you came from, just think about if the Lord tarries your great-great-grandchild not caring who you were and what you did. Personally, I would take that as a disappointing thing. I think that we should care about who we came from, where we came from, and so on. 
So I'll tell you who did care, and it's pretty obvious. The Jews cared about who and where they came from. And the Jews remembered. As the divinely chosen seed from Abraham, they greatly valued and they became very adept at keeping these genealogical records. Even when they were exiled from their homeland and and scattered over the earth, they kept very careful records. And that's borne out in numerous biblical passages. Um, and, and you know this. You know about the genealogies because when people talk about how tedious the scriptures can be to read sometimes, probably one of the top three examples they'll give of that tedious reading are the genealogies, right? We know that. So the Jews were careful. They cared about keeping these records and they were skilled at it. So it's not surprising when we come to the central figure of the scriptures that we find two genealogies for Jesus of Nazareth. One in Matthew chapter 1 and the second one in Luke chapter 3. Now you might not care about who you came from after, say, your great-grandparents, but you should care who Jesus came from. Because as we trace this genealogy, we are tracing God's plan and his promise for our redemption. And it culminates in a beautiful, beautiful Savior. Just a quick glance at these two genealogies. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 reveal differences. And the basic differences are that Matthew, in Matthew 1 verse 2, begins with Abraham. And he traces Abraham's descendants down through David and lands on Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, begins with Jesus. And then he traces that line back through Abraham and on to Noah and then on to Adam. So that's the basic difference. But there are more differences than that. In fact, when you really when you really begin to compare these two genealogies, you will find that there are gross differences between the two. For the most part, they're virtually identical between Abraham and David. But from David to Joseph, about 1,000 years worth of generations, there is virtually no agreement between the two. In fact, it seems like Matthew and Luke can't even agree on who Joseph's father was. Matthew names Jacob. To use the King James language, there was a Jacob who begot Joseph. And Joseph then had the son through the Virgin Mary, Jesus. Uh, um, And Luke names, if you look back down at verse 23, Heli as the father of Joseph. So we have quite a bit of disagreement here. Now, how big of a problem is this? To the modern skeptic, it is a huge problem for the evangelical claim that the Bible is true and inerrant in every part. But I'm just going to be up front right away with you. This is not a problem. Not at all. 
It's especially not a problem for the first century record keepers. And that's something that we really, if this, if this begins to make you worry, like, oh no, I thought the Bible was true in every part and they don't even have Joseph's father being the same guy. How, how could, if they got that wrong, what else did they get wrong? But this was not a problem, this divergence for the first century record keepers. Think about this. Matthew and Luke were contemporaries. Surely they knew of each other's work. And yet neither one of them produced a second edition of their work revising their individual genealogy. They stuck by their work. That says something. It also says something that the early church didn't have a problem with the divergent records. Because later copyists could have, as they sometimes did here and there, later copyists looking at the complete difference over a thousand years between the genealogies could have revised them. They could have edited them, edited, that's a hard word to say, to bring them into agreement, but they didn't. They recognized the differences and they respected them and they received both genealogies as the true, inerrant word of God. So the differences matter, but they are not a problem. The differences matter, but they're not a problem. So what is the answer? How do these two genealogies actually reconcile? Well, honestly, we don't know for certain. But I'm going to suggest to you, this is my personal leaning, I'm going to suggest a an option that has been around for, for centuries. I personally believe that Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry from Abraham to David and then through David's son Solomon to Joseph. And Luke, on the other hand, traces Jesus' ancestry back through Mary. So Matthew traces the line through Joseph and Luke through Mary to David and through David's third son, Nathan, and then on to Abraham. And I think that this is quite reasonable. I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Um, First of all, maybe you noticed that throughout the Gospel of Luke, as we've gone through the, the birth and infancy narrative that concerns Jesus, Joseph has been virtually nowhere to be found. Where are the stories about Joseph receiving the vision to take Mary as his wife and Joseph being warned in a dream about Herod and, and the necessity to flee Bethlehem for Egypt and then taking the family back to Nazareth in Galilee. Where, where is all of that? Where is the good man who is not willing to make a, a public spectacle of Mary, but was actually, before the angel told him to, you know, he wanted to put her away privately? Where are all those stories? Well, Matthew concentrates the birth and infancy narrative on Joseph how Joseph acts and reacts and so on. Luke, on the other hand, concentrates the birth and infancy narrative of Jesus on Mary and what she is thinking and what she is feeling and acting and reacting through the whole thing. So it would be quite natural when they come to the genealogy that Matthew will focus on Joseph's line and Luke, on the other hand, will focus on Mary's line. Well, how does this work? Because I raised that because the, the two genealogies, neither one of them mention Mary. Well, here's how it may have worked. If Mary didn't have any brothers, it would have been 
uh, reasonable and even customary for Mary's father, Heli, to adopt his son-in-law, Joseph, Jacob's son, as his heir. Okay? So there's one reason to think that Luke may be going through Mary's line. And here's here's another. When Luke writes in verse 23, Jesus being the son as was supposed of Joseph, he may be giving us a clue that he is diverging then from Joseph's natural line to Mary's. So then, what are um, the big picture differences between the two? Matthew would be um, tracing Jesus' legal right to David's throne. And Luke, through Mary, would be tracing Jesus' natural right to David's throne. Okay? And there are many other suggestions. Some of them are so complicated that they would make your head spin. In any case, though, there are many legitimate options to to reconcile the two genealogies. But I think that this is actually, this is something to to boast of. I, I think when you put these things together, these two records together, as we trace the genealogy of Jesus, together they say no matter how you trace the ancestry of Christ, He, and he alone, is the rightful heir to the throne of David, legally and naturally. I want to talk about another key difference in the genealogies, but we've got past the difficult thing. Matthew's genealogy says that Abraham, I'm going to use the King James language here, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob and so on, on and on, with 41 generations, 41 fathers begetting sons. So the concern of Matthew's genealogy is many fathers begetting sons. Luke, on the other hand, features one who is the son of many fathers. I'm going to say that again because it's an important difference and it's, it's really helpful to our appreciation to, to Christ. Matthew's concern is many fathers begetting sons. Luke's concern is with one who is the son of many fathers. Look back at verse 23, okay? It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed, and he's obviously saying that because of the virgin birth, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Jesus being the son of Joseph. And the entire genealogy, those 77 fathers, build off of these words, Jesus being the son of. This is really important. So if you're drifting, just kind of bring your mind back. This is critical. If we only translate the words from the original Greek that are there, this is what the genealogy would say. Okay? Because sometimes it's necessary when you're translating from one language into another to supply words in your own language that will smooth out the reading and make more simple our understanding. 
But if you strip away all of the supplied words, this is how the genealogy would read. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, of Heli, of Mathat, of Levi, of Melchi, of Jani, and so on, all the way back. So when you read, when you read the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, Luke is not emphasizing to us that Joseph is the son of Heli. He is emphasizing that Jesus is the son of Heli. That has huge ramifications for how we read this passage. So let's make a little more concise this genealogy. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph and of David and of Judah and of Abraham and of Adam and of God. Who is this man, the 78th person in this history? What is his significance? He is the first son of the 77th person in this history. And he is the only begotten son of the first person in this history. That's who he is. The son of the Jewish carpenter is the only begotten son of God. That's the point of this genealogy. And that's been one of the key emphases from the beginning of Luke's gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. Let's rewind a little bit. Back to Luke chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary and announced that she was going to have a son and said that the son that would be conceived in her would be, 1 verse 32, the Son of the Most High. And 1 verse 35, the Son of God. Over in Luke 2, toward the end of the chapter, we find pre-adolescent Jesus staying behind in Jerusalem at the temple and worrying his parents, Joseph and Mary, sick. So Mary finds him after three days separation, and she said, how could you do this to us? Your father and I have been searching for you for three days. And Jesus responds, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That I must be in the things of my father? Mary says, your father and I. And Jesus, in speaking of his father, speaks of a totally different relationship. And so we have the word of the angel Gabriel, Jesus will be the Son of God. We have the testimony of the pre-adolescent Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem that he has divine sonship. And then we have these three consecutive paragraphs where this is the focus. The baptism of Jesus. When the heavens are opened and the Father witnesses over Jesus and says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then the next paragraph is this genealogy culminating in these words. When we add it up, take the two bookends together, 
we have Jesus being the Son of God. The next paragraph, we find Jesus being led of the Spirit. This is the beginning of Luke 4 now. Being led of the Spirit into the wilderness for a face-off with the devil. And the devil will pound away at this man who is weakened with hunger. And he will lead two of the temptations with this provoking word. If you are the Son of God, do you see what Luke is hammering home? The baptism, the genealogy, and then the trial, the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is the Son of God. We have the testimony of Gabriel, pre-adolescent Jesus, the Father speaking from heaven, the historical genealogy, and then even the devil himself leading with, if you are the Son of God. Who is Jesus? He's not only the first century son of a Jewish carpenter. He is the eternally begotten, beloved son of the Most High God. Now Luke is writing to Theophilus. What is his point to Theophilus, the Gentile? He is saying to Theophilus, if Jesus is the Son of God, if he is who the apostles, who he claimed to be and who the apostles claimed him to be, then he is more than grist for the first century rumor mill to grind. And he is more than fodder for Sunday school discussion. He will not be the been there, done that of your spiritual life. Jesus will not be that rush that was that week at camp when you were a kid. He won't be that. He won't settle for that. He's too great for that. We must all know who he is. He will not be temporal to your life. He will not be that thing that you get to every once in a while. Or that person that you attend to once a week. He will not be optional to your life. You know, hit or miss kind of thing. Take it or leave it. And he is not reducible. He will not be only your savior, but not your sovereign. Relief for your guilt, but not the ruler of your life. That's not who he is as the son of God. The fullness of God will not settle to be a part of you. He invites you. He summons you to be part of his kingdom, but he will not be part of yours. He is ever the Lord of all. So if he is who the gospels claim him to be, then this is the one who will set everything to rights. This is the one who will make all things new. This is the one who rules over all, including you and including me. That's who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. Now we must also not only consider who he is as the Son of God, we must consider who he is as the Son of Adam. Because Luke is deliberately drawing our attention to that relationship as well. 
You see, remember I said that Matthew started with Abraham? Matthew was writing to the Jewish nation. And so in writing to the Jewish nation, it was natural for Matthew to start with Abraham, who was head of the Jewish family, and then end on Jesus. Luke is probably a Gentile himself. He's definitely writing to a Gentile, and he has a Gentile audience in mind. So Luke wants us to see that not only is Jesus for the Jewish family, he wants us to see that Jesus is for the human family. So he traces the line of Jesus through Abraham, the head of the Jewish race, back to Adam, who is the head of the human race. Luke wants all of his readers to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That's who Christ is. Now let's think about Adam for a moment. Let's consider who he was and why he was. Let's think about his significance. Because this this is necessary for us to understand how Jesus relates to him. On the sixth day of creation, we overhear these words in the council of the triune God. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. And so on the sixth day of creation, from the dust of the earth, God created the man. He made the man above all creation, the man and the woman alone bearing the image of God. They are the climax of creation and the crown of creation. And after God had finished those six days of work of creating, what did he pronounce over all of it? Up until then, he said it was good. God saw that it was good. God made it. He saw it was good. And at the end of the six days, he pronounced over the whole enterprise, it is very good. So who did he make Adam to be? What is his verdict of this man? His verdict is that Adam is very good. God would not pronounce very good over someone who was a fool, an imbecile, an oaf. God doesn't say very good over that. God did not go halfway on Adam, three quarters even. He made him in his likeness. So, not being halfway made, Adam is not going to go halfway. Adam can be single-mindedly and wholeheartedly God's. Single-mindedly and wholeheartedly, he can belong to God and serve him. But he can also sin. He can also sin. He doesn't have sin's corruption in him. But I believe he can choose sin because he doesn't have God in him. He is made in God's image. And he has God beside him. But I do not believe that the scriptures show us that he has God in him. And so Adam has the potential to rebel against God. This very good man is the head of the human race and our representative there in the garden. In other words, he stands in for us in the garden. And then his decision stands for our decision. If he obeys God, that is our obedience. 
if he disobeys God, that is our disobedience, his success or his failure, his guilt or his righteousness, his curse or his blessing will be our own. And I don't believe that you would want anybody else standing in for you in the garden other than Adam, unless it was Jesus himself. But it was going to be someone purely a man standing in for us. And I don't think any other man would do. Because, again, of God's verdict about him. God's estimation is that this man is very good. He is as good as a man can be. But when the tempter comes... Adam decides that he doesn't want to be the first of men. He wants to be the first, period. He decides that it's not enough to be like God. He wants to be God. He wants to displace Him. He wants to know good and evil. He wants to decide what is good and what is evil for himself. And so Adam rebels. He is not deceived as Eve was deceived. He decided he was deliberate in his rebellion against God. In the words of one reformer from the 16th century, it was surely monstrous impiety that a son of earth should deem it little to have been made in the likeness unless he were also made the equal of God. Not enough. Too little to be made in his likeness. He wanted, he was aiming to be equal with God and even to displace him. And when Adam ate, he ate for us. When Adam rebelled, he rebelled for us. And so we read this passage earlier from Romans chapter 5, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. And do you realize what Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 5? He is not saying that death came to you and death came to me because individually we made the choice in our lifetimes to cross the boundary of obedience into disobedience, to rebel against God. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He is saying death spread to all men because all men sinned In Adam, you have inherited two things from Adam. You have inherited a traitor's guilt and a traitorous heart. A traitor's guilt, Adam's guilt, and a traitorous heart. Let me put it this way from a a book that uh, Mark and Ashley and I are reading through right now. Author put it this way. I think this is really helpful. You have inherited a massive debt in your moral bank account, and it's impossible to pay off. But not only are we born with this debt, we are also born with a spending habit. So you are in debt, and you, from the moment you are born, continually make that debt greater. Now, if God will, in his justice, for one trespass, judge unto condemnation the entire human race, for one trespass, what will the same just God do after many trespasses? What, what do you do with a repeat offender? 
What do you do with a race of serial offenders? That's the question that we have to answer. And this is what God does. For one trespass, there is judgment that brings condemnation. But after many trespasses, there is free grace that brings justification. I'll read from Romans 5.16. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What kind of God is this? As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So again, one trespass, Adam stood in for you, so that led to condemnation for all. So one act of righteousness, Paul's specific reference is to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5.20. That's what kind of God we have. The solution to our union with Adam and our fall in him is Christ, whom the Bible calls the last Adam. You know, a lot of people who don't like what the Bible says protest about their union with Adam. I don't want to be in Adam. Why am I in Adam? How is it fair that that man represents me in the garden? I would do different than that guy. It's not fair that his guilt should be, biblical word is imputed, Romans 4, imputed to me, put on my account. That's not fair. But if you have a problem with the first Adam standing in for you, then to be consistent, you must also have a problem with the last Adam standing in for you. Does anybody want to say that they have a problem with that? If you have a problem with the first Adam's guilt being put on your account, you must, to be consistent, have a problem with the last Adam's righteousness being put on your account. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ is yours if you will trust in him. Romans 4, 24 to 25 righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is what Jesus, son of Adam and son of God, came to do. He came to restore and to redeem all that Adam ruined. This is our Savior. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. That's Christ. He came to save you. He came to save me. And He came for the salvation of His father Adam too. Let's pray. Father, in justice, you could have left things as they were. You could have left that, that relationship to Adam as it was. We were born in Adam, but now we may be, by your grace, born again into Christ, united to him. 
And it is impossible for us to even comprehend, to measure, to imagine all the good that we have in Christ. His life is our life. His death, our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection and glorification, our resurrection and our glorification. His welcome in your presence, His security at your right hand, our welcome and our security. His reward, our reward. His kingdom, ours also. We are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And so we praise you and we thank you that you have brought us into union with Christ. And I pray, my Father, that if there is anyone here who is in Adam, they would look away to Jesus and they would come to Christ and put all their faith in Christ to receive on their own record His very righteousness. We do not share His Godhead. But Father, we thank You that we share all of His good. In His name we pray. Amen.